Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you made a covenant with the world that you would not destroy it again with a flood. Help us to remember this covenant and through it remember your faithfulness despite ourselves. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Good morning and please be seated. I remember when I was a kid, I thought one of the coolest things in art class was doing things with clay, and then eventually if you you did it well, they would put it in the the kiln and fire it, and you'd have a neat little sculpture that you made with your own hands. But one of the neat things about clay was if you made a mistake, it was a very forgiving material. It wasn't like when you painted, if you sort of spazzed out your hand, you'd have a weird little line somewhere or something like that. If you were making something with clay and you put a hole in it, that you didn't mean to, you could just start over again. <clears throat> and that was, that was that neat thing about, about clay. It was so forgiving. <clears throat> and that's kind of what we're reading about this morning. It's a really crude analogy, but it was the best analogy I could come up with, is this idea of, of clay, of being able to remake what happened. And what we read this morning is really a recreation narrative. If we go back to Genesis 1, where we started this series, and reread from, from verse 26 to the end of chapter 1, we hear a few things that are really important for us to understand this morning. In Genesis 1, 20, 1 26, it starts, God said, let us make man, or humanity, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fishes of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all earth, and every creeping things that creep upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fishes of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of all the earth, and every tree that is with it, and seed <clears throat> with it in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And every beast and every of the earth and every bird in heaven to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And then, of course, we read that it was very good. But as we learned last week, the very good did not last all that long. But as the sin of Adam and Eve took over from generation to generation, things became worse and worse until the flood came. And then we skipped over the couple chapters where the flood comes and flood recedes. We know what happens there. But this is the sort of important part. As Adam or as Noah comes off of the ark with all the animals, God speaks to them and gives them some, some commandments, some things that he needs them to know. <clears throat> and so the first seven verses of chapter 9 are really a repeat, a recreation narrative of what we just read from Genesis 1. And it starts with these well-known words. It starts with God saying to Noah, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. <clears throat> be fruitful and multiply 
reminds us of our creation call, the call that we are to be, to fill the earth, for humanity to cultivate it wisely and to use the earth well. But then something dark happens as we go on to the second verse. If we remember what we heard of our relationship with the rest of creation, we're called to have dominion. But now God tells Noah, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of heaven and everything that creeps and on the ground and of the, fle- of, and of the fish of the sea and into your hands they will be delivered. <clears throat> so we have this call originally to have dominion. And dominion is, is an interesting little word. It's, it really means to, to rule over. And that ruling is, is a neutral word. If we look it up and look at different contexts of it throughout Scripture, it, it, me, it is used for both good kings or good princes and bad kings and bad princes. So really, we're just called to rule over. And what we did with that ruling was up to us. And originally, our call was to be good rulers over the earth. But as we just mentioned, sin creeped in. And now we read that the fear and dread of you will be upon every beast. Every, all of creation will now dread humanity. And now these words are actually fairly synonymous. You could actually really just translate this passage as the dread of you or the terror of you and the terror of you will be on every creature. But that wouldn't make much sense. And so those who translated ours wisely kind of distinguished between the two of them. But ultimately, creation is going to be really, really scared of you and your offspring, Noah, which means you and I. And so what we once were called to do, which was coexist with the animals peacefully, we can no longer do. And as we read on, we learn part of this is because the animals are now given to us for food, which I know some of us, Ty, <laughs> some of us are really excited about, which I'm also excited about that. You know, I like my burger as much as the next person. And so, of course, that's going to mean they're going to be scared of us. But there's another thing going on here. The perfect relationships that we were intended to have have been shattered because of sin. No longer are we able to live at peace with things. No longer are we able to live at peace with the world because sin has crept in. And sin has shattered that. But does God does give us the animals to eat, but gives us one clear commandment about that. You shall not eat blood. Blood is rightly so understood to be the source of life. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was understood, I think, in a little duality here. In part, it was understood to be sort of the soul of the animal, the soul of you and I. But at the very least, we even know now that if you don't have blood, you're going to die. You need blood to transfer oxygen throughout your your body. And so in a very real way, it is your life. And so God tells them, don't eat the life. That eventually will learn is to be poured out in sacrifice to God, whether it be in the wilderness if you, if you capture a wild animal or in sacrifice in the temple. Blood is poured out to God. And so I think part of what's going on here too is God is saying, I give you life. Even in this bad state that we're re- about to realize that we're in, God is still the giver of life. 
So we're called not to rob others of that very life source, not to defend, depend upon anybody except for God, for life. But then we get to the, the, the issue of humans. And we're saying, don't, don't take the life of a human for one very specific reason. We are not to take the life of the human because you and I, every human that you meet, as sad of a state or as joyful of an estate that you meet them in, bears the image of God on earth. And so in taking their life, you destroy the image of God that that person is bearing. And for this, God says, blood must be shed. Later, as we, if we read on into the law, giving of the law, we learn that the ox that gores a person must be put to death. That's how severe it is to have a life taken. If a life is taken, blood must be shed for that life taken. But there's an application here that perhaps we don't often think about. The application is that human life is incredibly incredibly sacred, no matter what that life is. And as a Christian, it is our call to have that be the shaper of our world view. Understand that we live in a culture that celebrates death, and it seems as though life becomes cheaper day by day. We must live in contrast to this. We must be a, cult, a people that celebrates human life, that values it deeply. My friends, I pray that you see life as sacred and that that is something that shapes your world view. Now, if you read this carefully, you might have noticed something was in, different in, in verse 8, for God made, and it, it reads, for God made man in his own image. And it might beg the question for you if you read carefully and you, you're thinking about this, well, why is likeness omitted? Some hypothesize, and, and it's possible that this is all it is, but I don't think that that's the case, that because the, the, the word in Hebrew for likeness sounds a lot like the other words leading up to this, they just dropped likeness because they didn't want it to sound too clunky. Doesn't really seem to be the way of Hebrew poetry, at least to me. I'm not exactly an expert on Hebrew poetry, but they like words that sound alike, especially in poetry. <clears throat> and I think something else is going on here. If you remember back to when we talked about Genesis 1 and this idea of image and likeness, if you remember what image signifies, signifies what we as human beings tell the world around us. We as human beings stand as sort of statues in the court in the square to say who that square belongs to. We as human beings stand as an image to remind the whole world who the world belongs to. And the world belongs to God. And that's why we're created in his image. It's to remind each other, but the whole of creation, that the world is God, is God's. Likeness is a little different. Likeness has this idea of relationship within it. Likeness has this idea of, of sharing a nature with something. <clears throat> and I think it's significant then and that likeness is dropped. Not that we drop 
the image of God, but that we drop the relationship that we have with God because of how we are created and then because of how sin has creeped into our lives. Likeness is lost because our relationship with God after we chose wickedness leading up to the flood has been catastrophically damaged. Our relationship with God is catastrophically damaged. And thus, I think Moses was incredibly intentional to drop likeness. This little section ends with sort of a, a bookend and repeats what we've learned at the beginning. He says, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly upon the earth. And then it shifts gears. Now, for those of you who are married or have been married, if you think back on your wedding, your wedding, your marriage is a covenant and it starts with a promise. Man and woman, if you go to page 300 of your book of common prayer sometime when you're bored, you can read this. Don't do it right now. You, we don't have time for that. But <clears throat> if you go to page 300, you can read the marriage service, and there's a promise that the woman makes and the man makes. They're, they're ever so slightly different, but they're making a covenant together to live out their lives to the glory of God. And they both bring something to the table and say to one another, I will do this, I will do this. And it's a covenant. And as we get into verse 8, we see that God starts to make, or verse 9, we see that God is making a covenant with Noah and his offspring. But it's not just with Noah and his offspring. It's with all of creation. And this is the first explicit covenant that we get in Scripture. But it's different than the marriage covenant. So just remember what we said about the marriage covenant, that, that when you got married, you made a promise, and, and your spouse made a promise to each other. And you'll see where I'm going eventually, I promise, I hope. <clears throat> but this covenant is with all of creation. And the covenant promises, I will not destroy you with a flood again. I will not pour out the water to destroy this earth like I did this, this time. But we do learn eventually that another judgment and another recreation, much like this judgment and recreation, will come upon the earth. <clears throat> this one will be more severe and more grace-filled. It's the one, of course, at the end of time when Christ returns and ushers the Christians, ushers those who are in Christ into the new heavens and the new earth. But for now, we have this promise. I will not just wholeheartedly destroy the earth as I did this time. And the sign of the covenant is a bow in the clouds. You notice there's a word omitted here. We often kind of get a, an image of what this bow is in our head, and that is a rainbow. One that kind of goes up and over and has lots of pretty colors. And you're probably right to imagine that. You are right to imagine that. But but in the scripture, it doesn't actually say a rainbow. It just says a bow will go in the clouds, and it'll be a reminder. Now, I think we're right to imagine this as a rainbow, but there's a theological significance to this that we'll get to eventually. But that rainbow reminds us of three really important things. First, it reminds us of God's faithfulness. It reminds us that even at the end of a rainy day, even at the hardship in our life, God is still faithful to us. And so we, when we see that rainbow, we can remember his incredible faithfulness. 
God also says that when he sees the rainbow, he'll remember his promise. Now, we aren't open theists. We don't think, well, God might forget he's up there and he, he gets bored playing back, backgammon or something. And he's like, what did I promise I was going to do again? Oh, yeah, that's right. Him telling us that he's going to remember that promise isn't for his sake. He's not forgetting, oh, I said I won't destroy the earth with rain. He knows that. He's not forgetful. He's not absent-minded or anything like that. It's for our sake again. It's so that when we see the rainbow, we remember his faithfulness, and then we remember that he remembers. We know when we see that rainbow, God remembers what he said he would do for us. And finally, there are three places in Scripture where rainbows are brought up. First one, again, or, or four places if we count this one. The next one is Ezekiel 128, where, and then Revelation 430 and Revelation 10.1. And in each of these cases, the rainbow is distinctly tied to God's glory. And so the rainbow not only reminds us of these good things for us, the most important center part, it reminds us of the incalculable, incredible glory of God. But the bow, the bow stands for one more promise. The bow actually has a little more significance than just, oh right, God is faithful. It isn't described as a rainbow, though I think we're right to think that it is a rainbow. It is simply described as a bow in the clouds. That's really interesting. And if we look up every other time that bows are brought up in the Old Testament, with the exception of that Ezekiel reference that I just mentioned, it is described as a weapon, a weapon of war designed to kill. It's describing a shooting bow. But remember how judgment just worked. Our judgment just was poured out on the earth through rain. But now that promise, the bow, is pointed in a different direction. The bow points to heaven. The bow points at God. Our sins cover us greatly. But God will come in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ our Lord, incarnate upon the earth to shed his blood for us. The bow points us to that promise. The bow says, I will take your great sinfulness upon myself. And that is incredible. And that is the hopeful thing that we have when we see a rainbow. We were reminded of his faithfulness. We were reminded that he does not forget. We were reminded of his incredible glory. But most importantly, we were reminded that Christ died and Christ has rose, risen again for us. But there's bad news in this covenant too. There's bad news. Because remember what we said about covenants? Remember the promises that you made to your spouse and how they made promises to you? There's no promise from man to God. God doesn't say, I need you to do X or Y or Z. It just ends. We see what we thought might be true with the omission of likeness. It is confirmed. Our relationship with God has become one-sided. It has become severed. We have lost that likeness in our sin. 
But there's something really fascinating. This could be the end of the book, right? It could end with that terrible, terrible, terrible news that, oh, you guys are really messed up. Just going to let that live out and see what happens, and at some point, we'll be over. But that's not what happens. The, the book goes on, and, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that aren't chronological, but at least Genesis and Revelation are, are very chronological. Genesis, the beginning, Revelation being the end. And all of this happens in between that. In other words, the story doesn't end with God just being sort of semi-merciful to man and just letting it play out and see how that goes. We keep reading and we see God continue to act towards man, continue to act towards humanity. And so every moment of judgment and every moment of mercy is God's grace. Because even though we turn our back on God in our sin, he turns towards us. He draws us to him. It is grace. And so that promise made in the bow, that this is not the end. But I will take my sin upon myself for your sake, is the good news. And so although this covenant could be incredibly discouraging, we are reminded that God acts towards us. God pours out his mercy upon us. And the epitome of that moment is Christ on the cross, shedding his blood for you and I, that covers our sin and makes us alive and turns our hearts back to him, turns us. So now we no longer turn away from him, but turn towards him, walk towards him, and have the image and likeness redeemed in us. My friends, I think chapter 9 is one of those incredibly bleak moments in Scripture, yet it's incredibly hopeful, because it's not the end of the story, but the beginning. So have hope. God is faithful. His glory is revealed. His glory is in Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.